Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode six of Rolling Release, our weekly podcast about the perpetual improvement of Linux. How you doing this week, Stephanie? Um, it has been a busy week, but I've been good. How about you? Yeah, I've been pretty good. My name is Jacob, by the way, and uh, yeah, joining us this week on Rolling Release is Stephanie Tsunami, uh, another one of the people who makes videos with us. Mark was again unable to be at the podcast this week, and in case you're wondering, yes, that is a bad sign for the health of the show. But uh, we're still trying to keep it going here. It was a really big uh, news week this week. I was uh, excited. I actually, throughout the week, I didn't see much happening. But then today, when I went to round up stories, I was like, wow, a lot actually happened this week. And I just, you know, wasn't seeing it. Um, so, yeah, Stephanie, what's your experience with Linux before we start here? I have never seen it, never used it, and I really don't know a thing about it. Yeah, um, so I'm thinking maybe before we start, um, I don't want to have a repeat of our episode one of this show where Mark didn't know what we were talking about the whole news segment, so I might just explain what Linux is first. So yeah, and this is also a good thing because we were talking about during the five-year live stream, Nerd on the Street is a, a uh, free and open software supporting company, but at the, at the stream, you know, you and Michael didn't even know the definition of free and open software exactly, so yeah, we'll just talk about some stuff. And, uh, yeah, so you know, what do you know about Linux? Like, what is everything you know about Linux? Isn't Linux, um, just another, it, I'm, it's used next to Windows and Apple, which leads me to believe that it's just another, um, software that we use, um, to navigate through... A computer, honestly, I don't have a really good description. Yeah, no, it's called an operating system, is what that is, and you, uh, that's the word you were looking for there. Windows and Mac OS and Linux are operating systems. Um, and Linux is a special operating system, because unlike Windows, which is made by Microsoft, and Mac OS, which is made by Apple, Linux is made by volunteers. Um, now, when you say the word Linux, Linux itself is a kernel, which Windows has a kernel, it's called Windows NT, uh, Mac OS uses a kernel called BSD, or it uses a kernel that's based on BSD. Um, Linux is the name of the kernel, and then there are some other tools that combine with that kernel to make the complete operating system. They're called the GNU tools, or GNU. Basically what the kernel does is it handles hardware stuff, and then the GNU tools are what you use to actually do useful stuff on the computer. Um, and then Okay. Other stuff layers on top of that. So with Windows, Microsoft makes the kernel, and they also make the desktop environment, which at this point, what's it called? Like, modern? It was called Metro for a little bit. The Windows 7 interface was called Aero. But, like, you've got a taskbar at the bottom of your screen, right? Yes. And you've got window decorations. You have window borders around each window that you've got. Uh, you've got an X button at the top right of each window, probably. And all of that mm -hmm. stuff is part of the Windows default desktop environment. Now, on Windows, people pretty much only use that default desktop environment. Um, on Linux, there are lots of different desktop environments you can use. And macOS is another one where there's only one desktop made for that, and Apple makes the desktop environment just like they maintain the kernel. Linux has lots of different desktop environments. So you can have the same Linux kernel and GNU tools, which random dude in the chat room is saying it's called GNU slash Linux. Some people call it GNU slash Linux. I just call it Linux for... Um, simplicity's sake. But on top of that same Linux, you can put different desktop environments on top of it that look different. Um, so you can have, the there's a really popular one called GNOME, 
Um, another popular one is called KDE Plasma, and that's what I use is Plasma. And um, our episode one of the show, the most popular desktop environment is called Unity right now, but it was recently announced that Unity will be discontinued later this year. So if you end up wanting to go and try Linux, don't try Unity because it's not going to be around very much longer. But yeah, basically the differences between the different desktop environments, man, I've actually... You know what? I've got a website that explains this really well. Let me, uh, <laughs> I made this for a school assignment, but I'm actually going to see if I can grab this real quick. Because, yeah, I, I, I don't know if I'm explaining what a desktop environment is very well. But this website... When you say desktop environment, uh, you had already mentioned, like, the start bar, the task bar, mm -hmm. and um, the layout of the um, application... That, the, that it's more so about the appearance and the way that um, the applications open up, mm -hmm. or is there something else to it? Um, so it is about, it's about the appearance and it's about the way you use your computer. So the actual applications are the same no matter what desktop you're using. You can have Google Chrome on Linux, and you can run Chrome on GNOME or on KDE or on any other desktop, um, but the window border around it is going to look different. Some desktop environments have a minimize button, some of them don't have minimize buttons. Um, it depends on the desktop that you're using, and some of them are very configurable, some of them are not. Um, so here's my little website that I made, and I'm going to put this um, up on the screen here. And like I said, this was actually one of my assignments for school this past semester. Now the school that I'm going to, I'm not actually going into web design for my track, but it was an option, and so we got to do an HTML project uh, as part of our first semester. So here is um, well, here's a, a page where I explain the Linux family of projects. So like I was saying, you've got the Linux kernel, the GNU tools, there are display servers that go on top of the GNU tools that draw things to your screen. Um, now the display servers are extremely simplistic, uh, so the desktop environments actually make like windows and things that you can use. And then on top of all of that, you've got user applications like Google Chrome or Firefox, um, LibreOffice, for document editing and um, so here's my page about desktops and normally what we're normally what we do here is uh, normally we've got a separate Jitsi window open for sharing our desktops actually so why don't I go ahead and open that up and uh, you don't have to share your desktop right now but I'll just share mine okay and then that way you can um, it's still gonna be pretty zoomed out but you can at least see the website in a little bit more real time than you might on the stream so you can open that Jitsi link up. Do you see where this website is? It says Linux at the top. Yes. All right. I'll zoom into Very it faintly. so you can see it a bit better. <laughs> so these are some different Linux desktop environments. And this is, you can kind of, you know, it's good to see screenshots of them. So this is, uh, this is GNOME. It's GNOME 3. And GNOME 3 has a much different design than GNOME 2. But um, it's the newest version. So it's just called GNOME. And then you've got this... GNOME has this bar at the top of the screen, and then the menu is open right now. It has a full screen menu with a dock of applications to the left. It's got virtual desktops on the right. Um, so that's how GNOME looks. KDE has a task bar at the bottom by default, which is sort of how I'm using it right now, and it's got a start menu type thing there. Um, this is the Mate desktop environment. This is what GNOME used to look like when it was GNOME version 2. It's got a bar at the top, a bar at the bottom. It doesn't have a full screen menu, it just had this drop down menu with all your different applications in it. Um, so you can see the different desktop environments. There's XFCE, um, 
it used to be really big. It's not quite as popular anymore, but we've got L LXQT is uh, another lightweight one. Enlightenment looks pretty different with this weird bar at the bottom with a bunch of stuff on it. Uh, we've got, this is what Unity looks like, and it had just a dock on the left side and a bar at the top. So these are what desktop environments look like. So they all have different panel okay. configurations, and um, this is called Pantheon. This one looks a lot like Mac OS with the dock at the bottom. Um, they all have different panel configurations, but they are all running on the same Linux base, and you can run the same user applications on top of them. But it is very different how you actually use your computer, because I'm using KDE. I have a start menu at the bottom left of my screen. Some people don't like that. Some people like this full screen menu that opens up. And just looking at a screenshot, you might not be able to tell um, exactly... Oh, that was a link. Uh, looking at the screenshot, you might not be able to tell exactly what you're looking at here. But yeah, these are windows okay. in an overlay sort of view, and you can drag these windows around, you can drag them to different desktop, uh, virtual desktops over here. And how are you familiar with virtual desktops on Windows? Um, no. They were around in both macOS and Linux for like a decade, and then Windows finally added them with Windows 10. So um, what they are basically are you can have several different virtual screens and you can switch between them so you can have a bunch of different windows open and not have it be as cluttered. Um, I use them pretty extensively. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're more useful when you've got lower resolution monitors, um, but even now that I've got a high resolution monitor, I still use them a whole lot just because I'm like, I put all of my Firefox windows in one virtual desktop, that's my internet desktop. I've got like a video that I'm editing in another desktop, so I kind of separate out um, tasks between desktops personally. But yeah, um, does that, does, can you see what desktop environments are a little bit better with that? Yes. Alright, so that's, I, I'm sorry, I was reading random dude's salty comment, why are you showing her vanilla gnome? <laughs> now she won't use it ever. Um, some people like vanilla gnome, random dude. Um, gnome 3 was very controversial when they changed it, because gnome 2, you can see, looks way different. Um, a lot of people were unhappy with gnome 3 when it first came out, random dude was one of those people. I always liked gnome 3 right from the start, but that's just me. Um, so yeah, here, we're gonna make it even more complicated now, though. In addition to desktops, there are things called Linux distributions. And what a Linux distribution is, is every time you go and buy a copy of Windows, you're getting that from Microsoft once again. Every time you get a copy of Mac OS, you're getting it from Apple, pre-installed on a Mac because Apple doesn't sell Mac OS for other computers. But Linux, because it's a it's an open platform and because Linux, the kernel and the GNU tools by themselves um, don't really do much. You don't just download Linux from some Linux company. Uh, there are lots of different... Your camera is getting more and more... Like, the, the shot is getting worse right now. I'm to resituate. I'm sorry. <laughs> so yeah, when you go to get Linux, there's lots of different people you can get it from. And there are these things called distributions, which basically, if you're having a distribution of Linux, what you're doing is you're taking a copy of the Linux kernel, a copy of the GNU tools, you're taking a copy of whatever desktop environment you want, and then a bunch of default applications. You're putting it all together into a cohesive experience, because um, if you just have the Linux kernel and the GNU tools, like, I wouldn't know what to do with those. Um, if I don't have a desktop environment on top of them, I might be able to do a little bit, since I'm an experienced user, but, you know, generally, you know, when you install Windows, you don't have to worry about a lot of technical things. Have you ever installed Windows before? Installed it? No. 
Okay. It is extremely easy. Like, you type in your name, you click next a bunch, and it basically takes care of everything for you. And most Linux distributions are the same way, and it's uh, the people making the distributions that make it so easy. Um, so yeah, when, when you've got a distribution, this also is where it gets kind of weird. So on Windows, when you download uh, a program, where do you go to download programs? On Windows? Yeah. To download a program, typically you download it off the internet. Right? Yeah, from a web browser, right? Yeah. You go to, like, if you want to download Google Chrome, or let's say Firefox is a better example. If you want to download Firefox, you go to getfirefox.org, and then you download it from there, right? Um, yes. Same on macOS. If you want to get Firefox on macOS, you go to getfirefox.org and download the DMG file. you got an .exe file for Windows. With Linux, it is possible to go to getfirefox.org and download a Linux version from the website, but what's better to do is to use your distribution's repositories. Um, so every distribution has something called a repository, and that is a collection of software that the distribution maintainers test and keep updated and basically make sure that, that it's okay to have on your system. Um, and then when you go to download a program, I don't have to actually go to firefox.org um, to get Firefox. I can open up a terminal and I can type in install Firefox, and it's going to grab it from my distribution's repositories. Now you may be asking, why is that any better if you're doing the same thing, just getting it from a different place? I'm getting it from my repository instead of the website, but what's the advantage? The advantage is, on Windows, and Mark uh, was bringing up all sorts of counterpoints fighting me on this point I'm about to make, but on Windows, when you have to update a program, how does that process work? Sometimes it's, if it's an important application, it'll remind you that there's an update available. Right. Um, and generally, when you install an update, you're installing an update for one specific program, right? Yes. So on Linux, what you can do... One at a time. Right, one at a time. On Linux, since <laughs> you can manage your programs through a... a uh, it's called a package manager that deals with your repository. Your, your, the repository is the collection of software. A package manager is the program on your computer that you use to access the repository. Your package manager can actually update all of the software you've installed at the same time. Because with Linux repositories, when you get an updated version in the repository, if you install all of your software from the repository, then all you have to do is say, package manager, check for anything that's been updated since I installed it, and then update it. So I can update Firefox and my base system, I can update my desktop environment and Google Chrome um, all by running the same one command. And I can also update all of my other programs. You know, obviously I've got lots of other programs. I have Kden Live for editing, OBS for streaming. Um, all of it is managed by my package manager, which I'm using a distribution called Arch, and it has a package manager called Pacman. So all I have to do is go into a terminal and type Pacman. Um, I'm not going to say the actual command, but basically Pacman update and then it updates everything on my system all at the same time because it's all being managed um, by my package manager. That's the advantage to using repositories. That's one of the advantages to using repositories. Um, That's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. And another cool part about it is part of the reason that Linux is less susceptible to viruses is because when the people who run distributions are making a repository, they're only going to put software that is 
safe to use in the repository. So I can open up my terminal and type pacman install anything, and I'm not going to get a virus because the people running Arch only put real programs into my repository. Now, if I'm on the internet downloading .exe files on Windows, you're not sure if that, you know, you have to really make sure it's on you to make sure that what you're downloading is a legitimate program and not um, not a virus or something like that. And the same thing kind of goes for macOS. Even though macOS is fairly secure compared to Windows, um, you're still going around downloading files yourself on the internet, and you can download a bad DMG file that's going to do things you don't want it to do on Mac. On Linux, as long as you only install software from your repositories, you are basically never going to run into viruses there. And another reason why that's possible is because the people who put the software into the repository are able to look at the source code of each program. Because on Linux, um, open source and Linux, they are separate things, but they kind of go hand in hand. You hear them used together a lot because most of the programs that run on Linux are also open source programs, which means that you can see the source code for the program. Windows is proprietary, which means that you know we don't know how Microsoft made Windows act the way that they did make it act, and Microsoft refuses to release the source code because they, they say that if they release the source code, then people it would be easier to pirate Windows, um, because if they release the source code, now you can copy the source code and compile it onto other computers. And at that point, how would they be making money? Right. And, you know, um, part of that is kind of been proven true by the fact that just about every Linux distribution is free. But then again, you've also got multi-billion dollar Linux companies such as Red Hat, Novell. Um, there are plenty of Linux companies that are making money through other means such as support for enterprises. You know, if you're an enterprise, you're not just going to get whatever free stuff is on the market, you're going to pay for a support contract so that if your stuff breaks, somebody will be there to fix it. Um, but for day-to-day -day users, we have to pay for Windows, you don't generally have to pay for Linux. Um, that's a side effect of open source, and that's a side effect of free software. That brings up another thing. During the five-year stream, you know, we talked about what free software means, and it's not actually talking about price. You see, the English language only has one word, free, for both freeze and price and freeze and freedom. Other languages actually separate those out into two different words. And the most common ones that are used are libre for freedom and gratis for price. Uh, you might have heard those. I, I don't know if they're Spanish or French. I think they're like sort of that same thing for both of those languages. Um, but yeah, libre software is software that not only can you see the source code, but you are legally allowed to basically do whatever you want with it. Um, there are certain situations where there is a copy left applied to a program, and if a program is copy lefted, then you're not allowed to use it in copyrighted software. If you use that code, you also have to copy left your software. Um, and that is a restriction put in place to protect the freedom of code, but some code is out there that you can literally do whatever you want with. The, the, whoever wrote it says, I'm publishing this for everyone to use. If you want to sell it, you can sell it. If you want to take it and change it, uh, you can change it. And, um, yeah, so free software, you're legally allowed to do whatever you want to with open source software. You can view the source code, but there may be licensing restrictions in place that prevent you from, say, reselling the source code to somebody else. Um, so, yeah, all, all free software is open source, but not all open source software is free.
Um, so yeah, and r random dude in the chat rooms name dropping some people, and I can go here and um, let's see. Yeah, so on my on one of the pages in my website here, the GNU tools were written by Richard Stallman in 1984 as an alternative to proprietary Unix systems, and then in 1991, Linus Torvalds wrote the Linux kernel, which was similar enough to Unix that the GNU tools worked with it. Um, so the two big names you're going to hear in Linux are Richard Stallman and Linus Torvalds. You're probably going to hear Linus Torvalds a lot more because he wrote Linux, Richard Stallman wrote GNU. And those two people are the two most important people in Linux. They have entirely different opinions on software freedom. Richard Stallman is the founder of the Free Software Foundation and he believes that all software needs to be free. You need to be allowed to do whatever you want to with software. Linus Torvalds is the founder of the Linux Foundation, and they're a much more corporate organization. They say, you know what, if there's legal restrictions in place, there's legal restrictions in place. The important thing is that we're doing what we need to do with the software. Uh, two very different philosophies. Uh, personally, I lean more towards Stallman, but you know, um, it's all Linux. So yeah, where were we? We were talking about distributions though. And so yeah, if you're using a certain distribution, that means that you're downloading software from that distribution's repository. Different distributions have different software available for them. If a program is not in your distribution's repository, but it is in another distro's repository, you can probably get it. Because a Linux program is going to run on just about any Linux system. Linux is Linux no matter what distro you're using. Um, but some distributions don't include all available software in their repositories. For instance, Fedora only includes free as in freedom software in their repository. Arch Linux includes proprietary software in their repository. So, you know, it just depends on who's running the distribution, what their personal philosophy is on that whole issue. Sometimes it depends on uh, what company owns the distribution because the reason Fedora only includes free software actually is not a, it's not entirely a philosophical thing. It's because the company who maintains Fedora, Red Hat, Red Hat doesn't want to get sued, so they only include free software. So yeah, you've got Ubuntu is the world's most popular Linux distribution right now, and it's the most popular for desktops. Fedora is um, another big one. Arch is the one that I use. It's a um, still pretty popular. It's a little bit more complicated to set up. Elementary OS is a smaller one. It's great for beginners, though. It looks a lot like Mac OS. Linux Mint is also great for beginners. It looks a lot like Windows. Um, OpenSUSE is a one that's really popular with IT people because it is made by Novell, which is a big IT company. Um, so yeah, I don't know if I've explained thoroughly enough the different. Like, I do you know what a distribution is at this point? Do you have questions about what makes a distribution a distribution? Okay, so what I have understood is that. Um, Linux is like an operating system, um, and I just can't use the exact words that you've used. Yeah. But I know what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you don't download Linux, you download a distribution of it that's going to have its own name, but it includes Linux. All of these, Ubuntu, Fedora, Arch, they all include Linux and the GNU tools. That is the common core between all of them. And they all have different desktop environments they ship by default. They all have different default programs. But you can get most of the same programs on each of them because they're all Linux. So yeah, there's that. Um, what else? What have I skipped? Uh, random dude in the chat room, tell me what I've skipped. Because I, I, 
I don't know. <laughs> what uh any 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 questions about Linux in general so far? So one of the things that I know um about Linux is that a lot of the times whenever I want to go get a game, mm-hmm. it'll say it'll list all of the different ways or uh systems that you can download said game on. Yeah. And a lot of the times uh or I've seen a lot of times where Linux is not or games certain things are not able to be on Linux. Hmm. So does that happen very often? It happens um pretty often, yeah. Now it's slowly changing because Steam is available for Linux now and Valve has ported all of their games to Linux and Steam OS is a Linux distribution. So if you want your game to work on Steam OS, um, then you're going to have to write a Linux version for it. And it, by doing that, you're also making it work on Ubuntu and all the other Linux distributions. But yeah, there are plenty of developers out there who only write for Windows or sometimes for Windows and Mac OS, but not Linux. The reason why that is, of course, is because there are more Windows users in the world than Linux users right now. And we've kind of, we've been running into this, well, we've been stuck in this chicken and egg problem for, Linux has been in this problem forever, uh, where it's like, we need more developers writing games for Linux, but they're not going to do that until users move to Linux. So we need more users to move to Linux, but they're not going to do that until developers write games for Linux. So it's a catch-22. Okay. It's not going to get better until A, we have brave developers writing software for Linux, or, and or, B, we have brave users making the switch to Linux. I'm in the B category. I only use Linux, even though there's some stuff that would be nice to have on Windows. I only use Linux, and if you want me to buy your software, you're going to have to write it for Linux. You know, I buy games on Steam. I pay money for games on Steam, but I only buy games that are available on Linux. Now, Mark has 600 games in his Steam library. 200 of them are available for Linux. So, on the one hand, that's only a third of the games. It's not very many. Ratio-wise, but on the other hand, 200 games is more than I play in a year, <laughs> personally. Um, I've got like 30 games in my Steam library, but you as a big gamer, I'd be interested in seeing your Steam library. Um, on Steam, they call it SteamOS. Steam doesn't say if it supports Linux, it says if it supports SteamOS, then you know there's a Linux version of it. Um, so okay, I'd, I'd be interested sense. in seeing sometime how many of the games that you play on a regular basis are available for Linux. Um, yeah, the there is on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, Adam, um, right when I switched Adam to Linux, he had just bought Fallout 4, and that's not available for Linux, so he was bummed out right at first that, like, he couldn't play Fallout 4 anymore. I don't know if he ever got it working um, on any other computer, but, like, he, after a week of not liking that he couldn't play it, he just, you know, it's just not something he plays because it doesn't work on Linux, so it's like, you can get used to it, video games aren't the end of the world, the 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 more well it's not the end of the world for me now there are plenty of people out there who video games are a much more serious part of their lives so you know if you're streaming every day i understand that you're going to be much more concerned with video game availability than i am um and adam is but yeah for me it's like video editors music editors and even that stuff i have found linux versions eventually um yeah Let's see, apparently I have 71 games. 71 games. Can you tell how many of those, uh, I think Mark's got a few more than you, it's 600. 
Uh, can you tell how many of those 71 games are available? I don't know how Mark racks up that many. Um, but yeah, how many of those are on SteamOS? The easiest way to tell is to log into Steam on a Linux computer, because by default it only lists the ones that are available for Linux. That's a good point. Um, I will not actually... Or I actually... I have... 67 for the games on here were already installed, but oh. I don't know how I can best see. Yeah, yeah, there might not be an easy way to on the Windows client. Um, hmm, random dude is telling me I skipped a couple of things. <clears throat> um, so random dude listed off System D, and um, I don't know if I want to get into that. I guess I kind of should. No. She doesn't need to know about SystemD right now. Uh, SystemD is a sub... It's sort of a... It manages a lot of stuff on a modern Linux system. It's um, fairly... It's not fairly new anymore, but I was here before SystemD was a thing. I was using Linux, and there was a big argument in the Linux community when SystemD was being implemented. A lot of people didn't like it because there's a, a philosophy that Unix systems follow. The Unix philosophy is have a program that does one thing and does it well. Um, and if you want a program that does two things, that shouldn't be one program, that should be two separate programs. Um, and the idea is that you know if you're writing one application that's supposed to do ten different things, then you're not going to do any of those very well. You know If you're trying to write one program that browses the web and checks your email and writes documents, it's probably going to have a crappy web rendering engine, it's not going to have a very good email client, and the document editor won't be very good. But if you've got a dedicated document viewer, to have somebody just focus on that, you've got somebody else making just a web browser, uh, the idea is that you can make better stuff doing that. And um, your development is also more organized. Now, SystemD is one program that does a whole lot of stuff. Um, so some people were opposed to it because it does not follow the, the Unix way. It is in every distribution at this point, by default. So, um, But you don't need to worry about it. Because systemd is something, what it does is it manages, and I'm actually, I'm taking an online course right now uh, for a Linux certification that I'm trying to get. Eventually I'm trying to get my Red Hat certification, but I'm taking um, a Linux Professional Institute certificate course in preparation for that. And I actually learned a little bit more about how this works recently myself. So when you turn on your computer, systemd is basically what starts up all of your running programs. So systemd starts your window manager, it starts your desktop environment. Um, it, it starts your display server, and yeah, it's it's really important, but it's pretty simple, and um, you don't have to interact with that at all. I interact with it okay. sometimes, but you don't have to. As a, you you can use Linux without ever using the command line. Um, the command line is when you're typing things, but you can use Linux and just use a mouse all the time, so you don't have to worry about systemd. Just if you ever. If anyone ever tells you to run a command called like systemctl something, like if you type into a command prompt systemctl reboot, that's a systemd command. Um, systemctl is a component of systemd. Yeah, process ID. She doesn't know what process IDs are, random dude. Why would you think this is helpful to the, uh, to the starter <laughs> course? Random dude did say that I should talk about display servers. Um, so a display server is in between the kernel and the desktop environment. The desktop environment is what makes all the panels. The kernel is what handles like hard drive activity and RAM and stuff. But in between that, the display server is what writes pixels out to your display. That's its own component. 
Currently, most Linux distributions ship with a display server called X, or Xorg, as it's sometimes called. I, there's actually a difference between those two, but it's nitpicky. I'm not going to get into it. And then there's a new display server being worked on called Wayland. And in about 10 years, every distribution should be on Wayland if things go okay. Uh, right now, Wayland is not entirely finished yet. But yeah, if you were to start using Linux today, you would be using X. And then in the next couple of years, you're going to see people saying, oh, this program works on Wayland now. And what they're saying there is X and Wayland are two different programs that they're two different display servers that write pixels to your monitor. And once again, you don't really have to worry about it. All you have to worry about is which one you're running. If you're running X, you can run any program. If you're running Wayland, some programs may not work properly. But Wayland is much more secure and also faster and better performing. So we want to get there eventually. Um, but yeah, that's we're just getting even more complex here. I think um, all of the complicated stuff we've we've or all the the basics we've covered. Um, question is, do we have enough knowledge to go through these articles? Yeah, that is a question. Um, let's see here. I thought about having you do what Mark did on... I don't even remember if it was episode one. The best way to learn about Linux is to use it. And what you can do is you can get... Uh, have you ever heard of VirtualBox? No. Okay. Uh, well, you can get a program called VirtualBox... And it lets you, VirtualBox lets you run basically virtual computers inside of your computer. It's pretty cool. You can use it to run, I, I've used it to run Windows on Linux before. So I can have a little window with Windows in it. You can have on your computer a little window with Linux in it if you wanted to. And it doesn't mess with the rest of your computer, but you can just start up this little thing that's got Linux in it. And then you can kind of try it out and learn about it without necessarily installing it um, on your computer as a full-time operating system. Okay, that sounds yeah, so simple. So I'm going to let you decide what we do next. Do you want to go to the news, or do you want to try installing Linux in VirtualBox so that you can try it out? I would say news, and then we can try it out. All right, sounds good. All right, so we're going to talk about the news this week. Um, at some point during this episode, we have to do an advertisement for the Nerd Club. So I usually would do that after yeah. the news. So we'll do that after the news. And before the VirtualBox thing. All right. There is a lot of exciting news this week. Uh, as I was saying before the show started, during the week, I thought this was a slow news week. But then today I went and looked and there was actually a lot of stuff that came out. I was pretty excited. So um, first story this week, Debian 9 has been released. And Debian is a distribution. Um, Ubuntu, the world's most popular distribution, was originally based on Debian. So Debian is pretty important. And um, yeah, so Debian has been around since 1993. And 24 years later, they have just released their ninth version. Debian is known for not releasing until it's ready. They don't have a release schedule. Ubuntu, they release every six months. Uh, Fedora, they try to release every six months. And then there's that one time they don't release for a year. But, you know, let's not remember that. But Debian, they, they don't have a release schedule. They say it's ready when it's ready. So they've just announced version 9. They have no idea when 10 is going to come out. They're just concerned about 9 being stable right now. Um, Debian is one of those distributions that everything in the Debian repository is free software, as in Libre. Um, now you can still get proprietary software on Debian, you just have to go to the website and download it yourself. So like Google Chrome is proprietary. Chromium is free, so you can get Chromium from the repository, but Google Chrome 
you have to go to google.com slash chrome and download the file for that as if you would on Windows uh, because okay. it's proprietary. So yeah, like I said, Debian's the foundation of Ubuntu and a lot of the, uh, this is a ZDNet article covering the new version. There's over, over 51,000 programs in the Debian repository just to give you a sense of um, the people who run Debian, there's a lot of people involved in running Debian because they have to vet those 51,000 programs um, and every time any of those are like security updates come out for those, they got to add those to the repository. But yeah, uh, we're going to take a look at, we can actually get the news straight from the horse's mouth here on the Debian website. They've got a post up talking about Debian 9. It's codenamed Stretch. So if you hear anyone talk about Debian Stretch, they're talking about version 9. Um, so yeah, after 26 months of development, that's how long it took this thing to come out, stable version 9, codenamed Stretch, has been presented, and it will be supported for the next five years, thanks to the work of the Debian security team and the Debian long-term support team. Long-term support team, I, I think every version of Debian is a long-term support release. So that's kind of... It seems like all of Debian is long-term. Yeah, it's it's just funny that they have a team called Long-Term Support because Ubuntu, every two years, they have a uh, long-term support release. So one in four is long-term support. Debian, every single one is long-term. Um, so here's some of the changes. Oh, by the way, Debian 9 is dedicated to the project's founder, Ian Murdoch, who passed away on December 28th of 2015, and I think that's while this was in development, even that far back. Uh, but yeah, he was the one who started Debian and I didn't realize, I, I think I read about it back when it happened, but this was just a reminder that he's no longer uh, with us. But yeah, um, some of the changes in Debian stretch. The default MySQL variant is now MariaDB. Um, and it's funny because in the past we haven't had default MySQL variants. It's just been MySQL. Um, do you know what MySQL is? No, I've never heard of it. All right. So on websites, uh, this isn't the only use for MySQL, but it's probably the most popular. On websites, you need databases to keep track of things, um, basically. So like the Nerd on the Street website has forums, and every time somebody makes a forum post, that has to be stored somewhere, and it's stored in a database. And the database is a, it's a MySQL database. Now on the Nerd on the Street server, we don't actually use the program called MySQL. We use a different program called MariaDB. Um, now, MariaDB was a fork of MySQL when this is getting into Linux politics again that you probably don't need to know about, but one company bought another company, basically, and they acquired MySQL as part of that, and this company who purchased MySQL's creator was not friendly to freedom and open source, so people forked MySQL into MariaDB, and when you have a fork that basically means they're making a copy of the code and then continuing on as a separate program, which you're allowed to do with open source programs. So yeah. Yeah, it's, it's significant that in the past you could always replace MySQL with MariaDB, and the two are completely compatible. Like, I can have a MySQL database and load it up into MariaDB. I can type the exact same commands in MariaDB. It's made to be 100% the same thing, um, only free is in freedom in addition to the open source thing. But yeah, now when you install Debian, which Debian is an extremely popular server operating system because of how stable it is, when you install Debian, MariaDB is the default. So you don't have to make the choice to uninstall MySQL and install MariaDB. It's just already MariaDB. So that is a win for Libre software uh, because a lot more websites are going to be using it now that it's the default on a very popular web server distribution. Another big development, I was shocked at this, Firefox and Thunderbird 
have returned to Debian with the release of Stretch. And here is why that's shocking. So um, over 10 years ago, the Debian developers decided that Mozilla's trademark policy did not permit them to include Firefox in Debian. Um, because the trademark policy for Mozilla says if you use our icon and our name, Firefox, then every time you submit an update to that program in your distribution, you have to run it by us first, and we have to tell you it's okay to push this code out to your distribution. Because it's using Mozilla's name, Mozilla thought we should have complete control over all of the code happening under this name, uh, even if somebody else is doing it. Now, Debian said, if there's a security problem, we want to be able to patch that without running it by you guys first. So what Debian has done is 10 years ago, they took Firefox and they started rebranding it. And basically what they would do is download the source code for Firefox. They would replace all instances of the word Firefox with Ice Weasel. And then they would replace all of the icons with their own Ice Weasel icons. It was the same program. They were just calling it something different, and that made it, that was actually legally more acceptable than just including Firefox. After over a decade of holding out that fight, um, they finally decided, for whatever reason, that it's okay. Mozilla did not change anything, so this is just the Debian developers saying, all right, I guess we can include this, um, because all the other distributions are already including it. Every, Firefox is the, like, the default web browser for Linux. On Ubuntu, Linux Mint, Fedora, Firefox ships with all of them by default. So Debian has just kind of been holding out this fight, trying to get Mozilla um, to drop their IP. That's a very long fight. It was a um, long fight, what is yeah. Thunderbird? Huh? Thunderbird is a is an email client. It's a desktop email client. It's sort of like Microsoft okay. Outlook. Um, okay. Yeah, not very many people use desktop clients anymore, but some people do. Some people like them. I don't know if you, I don't know anyone outside of an office job that uses that. Yeah, I mean I know people who use them but only in offices, so yeah. Um So yeah, let's see here. Another advent or another uh, improvement in Debian 9, the X display system no longer requires root privileges to run. Um so on Linux, every Linux computer has a user account called root. And the root user account has permission to do everything. Um, now, your user account is not the root account. Your user account might not be able to do everything, but so sometimes you have to log in as the root account to do certain things. For instance, when I update my software, I have to run the update command as root because Jacob does not have the permission to install software because that's a security flaw. Now, on Windows, okay, so oh, go ahead. Kind of like administrator. Yes, it is like the administrator account. The difference is. The administrator account in Windows is not allowed to do everything. There are some files on Windows you cannot delete. Um, go into your System32 folder, and there are some files. I, I've had to deal with this before, Stephanie. Have, did you watch my Nerd on the Street video called, what was the Nerd on the Street video? Removing iTunes DRM. That was the one. Did you watch that? No, I did not. But I know how impossible it is to get rid of some files. Okay. Have you dealt with this problem yourself? I'm gonna sound like a child when I say this, but just by sitting there and continuously telling it to try and delete an item even though it's not being used by any specific yeah. uh, uh -huh. window or 
application and yet it yeah. still will not delete and I end up leaving it there taking up more space. Yeah. There was I a there was a file in the system 32 folder that I had to delete on a Windows 10 system in order to put a different file in its place to get an unsigned driver to install so that I could use this program to remove DRM from some old iTunes files. And Windows would not let me delete that file because it's in your System32 folder. You might break something. Even if I right-click and click Run as Administrator Windows Explorer and try and delete it then, it still said I didn't have permission. And if the administrator doesn't have permission, who does? Yeah, that's a good um, point. So on Linux, the root account is able to do absolutely anything. There is there's nothing that the root can't delete now. That means that if you sign in as root, you can screw stuff up. Um, yeah. So, like, you can go into root and you can type, delete my entire hard drive, go, and, you know, a couple seconds later, your computer's going to be broken. So, that would be something I would do by accident. Just, I, I had Mark do it at purpose at school uh, when we were installing Linux just to see what it looked like. <laughs> but, yeah, it was actually pretty funny because stuff started disappearing from the screen as it went. But, yeah, so you generally want to avoid running anything as root if you can avoid it. Now, like software installation, it's a security thing. If my computer, let's say my computer did get a virus, if it's running under my user account, it can't do any harm because my user account doesn't have very many privileges. Um, it can't install more software, but the root account can install more software. And so if the root account gets compromised, then that's a pretty big security problem because it can access any part of your system. The root account can get to anybody's files. Um, that kind of thing. So you want to avoid running things as root. In the past, the X display server has always run as root. Now it no longer has to. So yeah, um, the stretch release of Debian features the new modern branch of GNU PG, and that is an encryption library. And I am not super well versed in it myself, but I know it's very important for package signing and just general encryption tasks on Linux. Um, so that's cool that it switched the new version of GNU PG. And um, let's see, debug packages are easier to obtain and use in Debian 9 Stretch. And I would really appreciate this if I was using Debian. There's a new debug system repository that you can add, and then you can install packages from that repository that provides debug symbols automatically. Okay. So, uh, so I actually am using Arch Linux, like I said earlier, and on my system, sometimes things crash, and then I try and go and get the crash reports for the things that crashed so that I can um, report the bugs that are happening. And um, the Arch Linux packages actually don't have debugging enabled by default, because when debugging is enabled, then there's more stuff going on in the background, it takes up more memory, more system resources. It's lighter to not have debugging enabled. Um, but you need debugging enabled if you want to help actually debug software, obviously. So on Arch, what you have to do is manually compile any program that you want to help debug. So I did that for KDN Live, my video editor. I actually have a custom version of it I'm running with debugging enabled so that when it crashes, I support the bug, or I submit the bug to the developers. But sometimes my desktop environment itself crashes, which doesn't happen um, for all desktops. GNOME doesn't really hardly ever crash, but KDE is a little bit less stable. Sometimes it crashes. So I, I'd i like to submit bugs to the KDE developers. All that I can do, though, since I don't have debugging enabled and I, I can't compile an entire desktop environment, that's something I'm not... I don't have the technical knowledge to do that right now. Um, all I can do is say, I'm having this problem. Maybe somebody with debugging enabled can try and replicate this so that they can get an actual bug report. 
Um, so yeah, if you're on Debian 9, you can just install KDE with debugging from the debugging repository and then be able to automatically have those bug, uh, crash reports. So that would be, that's super helpful. Um, there is improved UEFI support in Debian Stretch. And here's what caught my eye. The new Debian 9, it supports installing on a 32-bit UEFI firmware with a 64-bit kernel. You know where this is relevant? Is the old Mac Pros, the 2006 through 2008, they had a 32-bit bootloader and a 64-bit processor. And so I have to either install 32-bit and not use all of my RAM, or I have to go through a lot of hoops to get a 64-bit version to start on that old Mac Pro that I have. Um, so I'm actually going to try installing this new Debian on that Mac Pro because this, even though that, that computer's over 10 years old now, um, it's, it'd still be nice to just be able to install something on it that works um, out of the box. So I'm yeah. going to definitely try that out. And um, I know on my laptop I have UEFI disabled. I've just got the regular BIOS on my laptop. Um, do you use UEFI? Does your computer have that? Um, not, that not that I know of. Okay. Um, Meaning that I could and possibly could not. <laughs> um, do you, when you when you boot to your BIOS, is there a mouse? Okay. You, once All again, right. lost All right. me. Never, never mind. It's fine. Uh, this release includes numerous updated software packages such as Chromium, Firefox, GIMP, uh, the GCC, KDE Frameworks, LibreOffice, MariaDB like we talked about, uh, Java, we got PHP, Python, Ruby, um, Thunderbird, and more than 51,000 other packages, so they didn't want to list all of them right there. But um, yeah, if you want to try out Debian, Debian is a great distro. It is not always people's first choice. Because it only releases like every three years, that means that if I was using Debian 8 three weeks ago, all the software would be three years old. Whereas Ubuntu has a six-month release cycle, so you get updates to all your programs every six months. Now, you always get security updates, but like feature updates, you would only get those every six months. Um, I'm using Arch Linux, which is a rolling release distribution, name of the show here, and a rolling release distribution you get an update for a program as soon as it comes out. So, like, I never... There's no Arch no, Arch version 2, Arch 3, Arch 4. It's just Arch, and everything is constantly updated. The downside of that is that things aren't always as stable, because when you install an update that was just published, there might be problems with it. Whereas Debian, these things have been being tested for three years now, so if there were any problems, they would have found them. So Debian is extremely stable. You can go to Debian.org and get that for free. Here's another um, sort of related story. Debian GNU slash Herd 2017 has been released. And uh, so Stephanie probably didn't need to know about Herd right now. But so we've got Linux as the kernel. There are also some other kernels out there, Unix-like kernel, that are alternatives to Linux that can also use the GNU tools. The most popular one other than Linux is called BSD. And then there's also one called Herd. Um, so the Linux kernel, like I said, Richard Stallman made the GNU tools, Linus Torvalds made the Linux kernel. Linus Torvalds is okay with proprietary software. So most distributions include some proprietary software in their Linux kernel. They're called proprietary blobs. And that sections of the source code 
That's not source code. <laughs> That's a good name. Yeah, I mean, you're it's you're looking through the source code and just smack in the middle of it. There's a blob of code you can't read because that's proprietary code, um, which is a real you know. If you're actually trying to do useful stuff with source code, that's a problem for you. Now, as someone who's not a developer, I don't see that on a day-to-day -day basis. But I'm still you know I'd prefer it all be open source, um, for reasons that I've talked about. So. Because Richard Stallman is not happy with the way that Linux is going and kind of being so open and friendly to proprietary software, he actually went and made his own kernel called Herd. So GNU slash Herd is a complete, uh, complete free as in freedom kernel plus tools package. This is a completely free operating system, and it's still in development. Um, but yeah, there is a Debian spin that uses Herd as the kernel instead of Linux. The same Debian, everything else. It just takes out the bottom piece, slides in another one. Um, so yeah, and that would be heard. That's a good way of putting it, yeah. by the way. And I've never used heard before. I've actually got a virtual machine here, and I'd actually like to try it out live on stream right now because I, I was excited about it when I read about it years ago, but it was nowhere near usable years ago. So we're actually going to start up heard right now. We'll see how, how far we get here. All right. Pseudo graphical install. Let's do this. Yeah, random dude in the chat room says there is something called Linux Libre, and what they do is they take the Linux kernel and they take out all of the proprietary parts. You know, Herd just doesn't have proprietary parts to begin with. All right, so this is not as nice. I actually just installed Debian 9. Um, oh, how do I escape? All right, I've actually got Debian 9 right here on another virtual machine that I installed to check it out. Um, but yeah, Debian 9 had an actual mouse when I started it up. Uh, Herd did not, but we'll see. Let's see, so we'll start up Debian here, and you can see what this looks like. Just a completely default um, Debian install is the right side. All right, and we're configuring our network over in Herd. Password. This is almost exactly like the regular Debian install, except it is in a command line instead of with a mouse. Um, and it's not even like actual command line. It's the pseudo graphical. I use entire disk. That one's fine. Yep. Alright. Finish. Um, Alright, gotta keep clicking stuff. Yes, finish, please. Yes. EXT2! Alright, so Debian's default, uh, this is actually in one of our news stories. The default Debian um, yeah, default Debian file system is ext4, obviously, because it's 2017, and nobody's used ext2 for a long time. Uh, Herd is still on ext2, so, so falling a little bit behind. On the left side here, this box, this is Debian we just installed. Uh, this is GNOME that we're logging into, and I don't know if it's going to go into fallback mode or if it's going to be actual GNOME 3. This is actual GNOME 3, all right. So let me disable. We my... have a question from Random Dude. Okay. He said, "If I use Herd, will I be able to use the GNU apps? Will they be compatible with Herd?" Yeah, I mean the GNU apps are definitely compatible because they're written by the same person and they're packaged together. Um, now, in terms of like Google Chrome on Herd, I don't know, but yes, the GNU apps, the GNU tools, definitely anything open source you can probably compile for Herd. Um, how do I disable? I don't know how I can disable uh, mouse pointer whatever. But here's the here's the um, here's GNOME three, and you can see here's what desktop environments are. So I can open up one file right here, 
one file window. I can also open up an office suite here. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh no. The dog is attacking. No, not right now, Daisy. <laughs> so here I've got a, uh, a word processor open, and what we can do is instead of having both of these things in the same desktop, I can actually drag one of them to a second desktop. So now I've got one desktop with the file manager on it, and I've got another desktop. Um, how do we... I don't think there's keyboard shortcuts. I've got another desktop up here with the file, or the uh, document writer there. So this way, it's a, it's a space-saving thing. I can have things open in this desktop. I can have things open in this desktop here. Um, and then here's a blank desktop. I like GNOME 3. Um, the animations are disabled on this because, uh, you know, it's running in VirtualBox, but yeah. So yeah, this is what it might look like if you were to install Debian. I'm surprised, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess it makes sense that it ships with GNOME 3. Here's some games pre-installed. So now we're playing some Snake while we're waiting for, uh, for Herd to install over there. Oh. I died. <laughs> that was quick. Yeah. And how are we doing over there? We are installing the kernel right now over on our herd. There needs to be a remote control. Like, there needs to be multiplayer over the internet for uh, Nibbles, which is this game I'm playing right now. It's a great worm game, but you can play multiplayer with different people on the same keyboard, but, like, it would be great if me and Stephanie could play while we're waiting for this. Um... That's enough of that. Yes, I did. I'll quit while I'm ahead, too. So we've got <laughs> Evolution here is another uh, popular email client. Rhythmbox is a music player. Um, yeah, I mean, we've got, you know, this is, like I said, we got the file browser we can go through. We've got our desktop folder documents. It's pretty similar to Windows, really. Um, yeah, GNOME just has the, the crazy full screen menu thing. Yeah, I use KDE myself, which is a little bit more um, close to Windows. But let's uh, let's close out of our Debian. I'll shut it down properly here. Um, Random dude asks, "Who hates Adweda, which is the default GNOME 3 theme?" I think it's all right. I don't hate it. I hate it on fallback mode, but I don't hate it in regular GNOME 3. Your installation CD has been scanned. Debian Archive, the only option is Netherlands. So that's just great. That must be the only place where Herd is, is... See, I downloaded regular Debian from the United States. This is a this is sort of a tongue-in-cheek thing. If I was with other Linux users, they'd be laughing at the fact that we're trying out Herd right now. Just so you know, this is not a serious operating system that somebody would use right now. In a few years, it might be. But, like, this was a... This was partially because I'm genuinely curious how far along Herd is. But, like, this is also a... This is supposed to be a... I don't know. Um, not entirely. We're not expecting this to be perfect here. Why don't we leave that going while we talk about our next story? Actually. The next one is on DistroWatch. Yep, so DistroWatch reports uh, a couple of different stories, actually. One of them is the release of Debian, but the other one that we're talking about the DistroWatch reported on is if you're running the Fedora distribution and have recently been running into errors when attempting to upgrade software, Chances are you've been affected by a recent bug in the libdb package, uh, which I would assume stands for Library Database. Um, you can read about it on the Fedora Magazine website. 
and we can scroll through it here. Basically, if you recently upgraded and got some kind of error or crash, and now you're getting RPM database errors, you should try rebuilding your RPM database by running this command, sudo rpm dash dash rebuild db. Um, run that in the terminal. You might also have to remove the database, then rebuild it, um, but that should remove the corrupted database. You should be able to upgrade your system normally. Now, I was actually running into this bug, and I was tearing my hair out because my I've got a laptop that runs Fedora, and it wasn't updating. I thought that I was doing something wrong, or I broke it because I don't use Fedora very often. Turns out it was a widespread issue. So yeah, if you've been trying to update Fedora, now they say that it was, if you're upgrading from Fedora 24 or 25 to the recently released or upcoming Fedora 26, is that out yet? Because um, I, I don't think Fedora 26 is out, or we, nope, it's still in beta. I was going to say we would have caught that as a news story if that was out, but yeah. Um, I was just trying to update my 25 system, and it was also giving me issues, but I'll try running this. Just a PSA if you are on Fedora, and of course they apologize. Fedora is a it's a uh, bleeding edge distribution. It's not as bleeding edge as Arch, because Arch is rolling release, but Fedora, as far as regular old release-based distributions go, is uh, it was historically bleeding edge, so you know, you've got to deal with issues every now and then. Uh, the next story that we're going to talk about is FreeNAS 11, and this is actually something based on BSD. So this is not Linux, but this is BSD. Also in the Unix-like free family, though. And uh, FreeNAS is extremely popular for setting up network-attached storage servers uh, where you've got, like, a hard drive or a cluster of hard drives on your network where you can store files so that everyone else on your network can access them. And we've got, uh, yeah, FreeNAS 11. It's all right. <laughs> uh, this new version of FreeNAS has some new virtualization and object storage features. Basically, they're making FreeNAS, which used to be just for file hosting, they're also making it so that you can use it as a server for other things like virtual machines as well. Um, the new version gives users S3-compatible object storage services, which turns your FreeNAS box into an S3-compatible server, letting you avoid reliance on Amazon's S3 cloud if you're looking for S3 features. That's really cool. Um, so yeah, this FreeNAS 11 is based on FreeBSD 11 Stable, which came out semi-recently, and uh, it should be 20% faster than the older version of FreeNAS, which was 9.10. The uh, new FreeNAS 11 also introduces a beta version of the new administration GUI, which looks really nice. Uh, we're going to open this image in a new tab and zoom in a bit here. So this is the this is like the admin interface for FreeNAS, so you can see what your server's load is, um, how much storage you got open there, different system information, um, memory really usage. Cool. Yeah, and it looks really nice. It's really nicely polished. Um, yeah. A lot of Linux users use FreeNAS, even though it's not Linux, even though it's BSD. Generally, if you're a Linux person, you use Linux. If you use BSD, that's a different different kind of person if you use BSD. But uh, FreeNAS is actually extremely popular in the Linux community for people making self-hosted file um, network file servers, basically. So yeah, that new, I'm really looking forward to that new interface and let's see what else we got here. Um, also new in FreeNAS 11 is an alert service page, which configures the system to send critical alerts from FreeNAS into other applications and services, such as messaging services like Slack or HipChat, you can be notified on. I wonder if there's a Rocket Chat plugin. Um, you can also have um, notifications sent to Amazon Web Services, even though one of their features was 
getting you off of Amazon Web Services. Another feature is integration with Amazon Web Services. So they're just adding features all around. Uh, FreeNAS 11 also has an improved services menu that adds the ability to manage which services and applications are started at boot time. And this is another thing that on Linux, Systemd does this. Systemd is what controls what starts at boot and what doesn't. Uh, BSD has some other tools that do it, but you don't have to, you don't have to worry about what tool it is because FreeNAS has just a, a menu. You can click a little checkbox for everything you want to start on boot, which is very nice. Um, so yeah, if you want to try FreeNAS out, it is free as the name implies, and you can go to freenas.org and download that after you either sign up for their newsletter or there is a link to skip that, so that's good. Um, yep, download the ISO right there. It is online. Cool. Anything? I haven't been asking you if you have thoughts on every story because I assume that you don't, but any thoughts on FreeNAS? <laughs> I like their logo. You like that's the logo? All. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's a new logo because I don't recognize it, but I also don't use FreeNAS myself. Um, but yeah. I mean, do you know very much about, well, I mean, uh, does the shark fit in with the name? No, not that I know of. BSD, the B, BSD's mascot. So you know the, the the Linux mascot is a penguin. Yes. Yeah, BSD's yeah. mascot is a little demon thing. Um. Yeah. So like, if we. That's a jump. Yeah. Like. BSD. So, yeah, I it's this little guy here. Yeah, is, they're all going. For Aggressive animals. I guess. Yeah, penguin aggressive, but. I wonder if there's um. I mean, they've got. See, these are a bunch of free nas people wearing the little demon ears. None of them are wearing shark outfits. Uh... Okay, that's really funny. Yeah, I don't that's know. Weird. History. Um, I wonder where they would say you can. Pro you can definitely find the story behind that somewhere. I don't know it right now though. Um. Our next story is a new ISO image writer. Uh, oh, it's just called ISO Image Writer, and it's a new Qt-based bootable USB creator, um, and it is similar to OpenSUSE Image Writer. That's what I use right now. Whenever I need to install a Linux or a even a Windows or a BSD ISO onto a USB drive for installing onto a computer, I use a program called OpenSUSE OpenSUSE Image Writer. Alright, it's called SUS Studio Image Writer is what it is. So it's right here, and you drag in the ISO, and here you select which USB drive you want to wipe out and put that ISO on, and then you click write, and it does it. I'm not going to do that right now, because I don't have anything I want to write over right now in my computer. But yeah, this is a new program, and um, SUS Studio Image Writer is great. It is a little, like the GUI, the drag and drop doesn't always work. Sometimes you have to select it from a menu. And it's not always in my distributions repositories. Um, it is in the Arch repos. I don't think it was in the Ubuntu repos. Um, so yeah, depending on what distro you're using, it might or might not be easy to get that. Obviously, if you're using OpenSUSE, you can get it. That's who OpenSUSE made that for. That's who Novell made that for. Um, but yeah, this is a new cross-distro program, and it should be supported just about everywhere once it gets up and going. It is being created by... Jonathan Riddell, who is a prominent KDE developer and a project lead of the KDE Neon software stack. Uh, oh, they're calling it a software stack now instead of a distribution. That's funny. Um, but yeah, he's he's a in charge of the KDE Neon distro, and 
so this is a KDE app, or it's sort of a KDE app because it's by a KDE developer, so of course I'm going to like that. Um, yeah, random dude says DD all the way. You can do this in the command line, random dude, but what if I tell Stephanie to make an ISO on a, to a USB drive? Do you think Stephanie is going to open up command line and write out a DD command for doing that? I don't even, I have to look up how to do that every time I do it. I have not memorized how to write an ISO onto a USB drive using DD. Um, I still use a GUI every time because it's safer. I know I'm not going to accidentally write over my entire hard drive by selecting the wrong hard drive. Because um, these programs just make, they only offer you options that make sense. They're not going to offer to write a 2 gigabyte ISO to your 250 gigabyte hard drive. They say, nope, that's not something they'd want to do. That's not show them that option. Uh, but yeah, ISO Image Writer is based on a, an existing program called QT5 Rosa Image Writer. Um, and it is a cross-platform USB image writer that is recommended by KDE Neon. Um, KDE Neon just decided, hey, we recommend this to everyone. Why don't we just fork it and make our own version to recommend instead, I guess. There are some additional features in KDE's version. It adds ISO verification that automatically checks the digital signatures or checksums of your ISO files, which is something you always want to do. But sometimes you just don't have the time to do it manually. If you're in the terminal, for instance, random dude, and you just got done downloading an ISO image, a checksum is something you use to make sure that an ISO has not been corrupted accidentally or tampered with on purpose. That's what a checksum is for. Um, well, the digital signatures is more to prevent on-purpose stuff. Checksum is more to prevent accidental corruption. So what this does is it checks those things automatically, so if you don't have time to run the commands to check that yourself, you can still be secure because the program does it for you. Um, this app also uses KAuth, so it does not run the main UI as root. We've already discussed root and why you don't want to run things as that, so that's nice. So yeah, just a nice simple story um, that is over on the KDE Community Wiki if you want to try it out. It is an alpha 0.1 as of Thursday, it is Alpha 0.1 has been released. So yeah. Okay, so what exactly is an image writer? So an image writer, when you download Linux, you get it in a .iso file, and that file is a, it's a bit-for-bit -bit image. It's a copy of what you can put onto either a CD or DVD, or you can also burn it onto a flash drive. Um, it used to be more popular to burn things onto CDs and DVDs. Since those are one-time use things and Linux is always being updated, most people at this point have moved to flash drives. But I, let's say I wanted to install Ubuntu on a computer, I would download the Ubuntu ISO. I would use an image writer to write the ISO onto a flash drive. And now I can plug this flash drive into a computer and it will start Ubuntu up. Okay. So yeah, that's what the image writer does. It just You can't just copy the ISO. Um, as a file, you have to actually write it to the USB drive, and that's more complicated than just right-clicking and clicking copy and paste. That's why you need a dedicated program for it. So yeah, um, our last story this week, Steam is now available as a flat pack, and there's also some instructions on how to install it on Ubuntu. So, what is a flat pack? Good question. All right, so I told you about how there's this great thing called repositories where we can update everything at the same time. Everything gets vetted by the same people. It's great, right? They're trying to get rid of that right now. Um, yeah, I, I don't like it. I use Arch. I'm fine with repositories. See, the Arch Linux repositories have every program under the sun it includes. Every single program I could ever want I can get from either the official repository or the user repository. 
Some distributions like Ubuntu have a lot of programs that just aren't in the repositories. Fedora even more so because they only include free software. There's tons of proprietary programs that aren't in the repositories and that means it's harder to get them. So these people on these other distros with inferior repositories instead of just making the repositories better they're trying to sidestep the whole issue by getting rid of repos and uh, yeah so there are three main competitors right now in this there's this universal installer thing that we're trying to make in Linux um, alright so in terms of packages I explained what repositories are but there are several different types of Linux packaging systems Ubuntu and Debian and all of the distros based on them use .deb files. Um, Red Hat, which means Fedora, and OpenSUSE, and all of the distributions based on them use a different format called RPM, Red Hat Package Manager. Okay. The, those are two separate packaging formats. You can't install an RPM on Ubuntu. You can't install a Deb on, on Fedora. You can convert between the two sometimes, but basically the developer has to go through the process for making a dev file, the process for making an RPM. And then if they want an arch, they have to make a Pac-Man, you know, arch package, even though that's easier. And there are other package formats out there. So there's a push right now because Linux is heavily used by developers. Developers are basically saying also, well, we don't want to have to make a different version for every distro. We just want one version that works on all Linux everywhere. Um, and you could already do that. You could already do that by putting out the source code and having people compile it themselves. But people aren't happy with compiling things themselves. They want things pre-compiled into binaries. So we've got universal installers. Basically, they're trying to make EXEs for Linux that work whether you're on Arch or Ubuntu or Fedora. You can use one same file on all of them. There are three competing standards right now. There's Snaps, which... All right, I'll go through the three first. Snaps, Flatpaks, and App Images. Snaps okay. are backed by Ubuntu and Ubuntu's owning company, Canonical. Canonical is developing and pushing Snaps. Red Hat, is, which is the multi-billion dollar US-based company, Canonical's in the UK, Red Hat's here in the US. They're a bigger company corporate, but they're not used by as many desktop users. They are trying to get Flatpaks out there, and so the Fedora project is very much supporting Flatpak. App Images... I don't know who's really behind those, but app images are my favorite out of the three, is the thing. I've used all three of these. App images are my favorite because app images you don't have to install at all. In app image, you download it, it's a file. You run it, the program opens up. You close the program, you put that file onto a USB drive, you plug it into another computer, you can run it off the USB drive. It's just one file with the entire program contained. I love that. I think that's awesome. Um, I mean, it's much more simpler. It is much simpler, uh, yeah. And Red Hat definitely makes a lot of sense if it's based in the U.S. I, that was just some background information, but they, uh, they're a much more corporate power, but they don't have as many desktop users, because not very many desktop users use Fedora. Ubuntu, like I said, Ubuntu is the most used desktop distribution, and it's made by a team of 200 people in the U.K., um, Red Hat is a much larger company. They've got a lot more money. They've got billions of dollars versus Canonical, which has been making millions of dollars in losses for the past 10 years. Red Hat is actually billions of dollars in profit every year, but they're still on even playing ground in this game, technically. Uh, so yeah. So Snaps and Flatpaks, basically what you do is you install either Snap 
or you can install Flatpak. You can install both if you want, but you're basically installing another package manager. So if I install, if I use Pacman to install Snap, now I can use Snap to install Snap images. And if I use Pacman to install Flatpak, then I can use Flatpak to install Steam. Now, instead of just doing it through Pacman in the first place, it adds a layer of complexity to the whole situation, which is why I don't like universal package installers. I think that the repository system is fine. There's other reasons too, such as with repositories, there's these things called dependencies, where you can have a library that's used by several programs. So like if there's a video playing library and I have three different programs that all utilize video, they can all use the same video playing library. That one library can get updated, now all the programs have the new version of that library. With these universal packages, all of the libraries that you need for a program have to be included with that program. So, so yeah, it just adds in a bunch of redundancy where it doesn't need to be, I think. But it's the next big thing. It is going to be here soon. And Steam is available as a flat pack now. So it is being distributed through FlatHub, which is the place you go to get flat packs just like Snaps. You go to um, Snapcraft to get Snaps, I think. Uh, what is that? Random dude, yeah, random dude says I'm confusing her even more. That's because this, I, it confuses me how people think this is a good idea. I was in a, I was talking to people about this in my System76 chat just this past week. Uh, people were asking. They just want to go through the hoops, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, uh, but yeah, what, where do you go to get, let's see, snap, download. That's probably not going to get me anything. Yeah, that, no. Ubuntu snap download. Is it just snapcraft.io? Um, yes, it's snapcraft.io. No, it's uappexplorer is where you go if you want to get snap applications. And then you go to FlatHub if you want to get Flatpak apps. So Steam is on FlatHub. Now, Steam is a proprietary program. Just so everyone's aware, source code for the Steam client is not published, which is kind of weird, but understandable-ish. So because it's not... Well, I mean, if... So, for Steam, now, um, if their code was published, then wouldn't that mean that there, were be, there would be a lot more clients out there for people to get games off of? What do you mean? Um, so, Steam allows you to not only have forums, community, um, messaging friends, mm -hmm. but it also allows you to download games, software... Of course, yeah. Um, writing whatever you like. Mm -hmm. um, so if someone were to uh, rewrite or adjust that code, um, if it were released, now wouldn't that mean that there would be more applications for people to get games off of? Well, Steam, when you're downloading those things, they're all coming from Steam servers. So Steam has complete control whether the client is open source or not. Um, if they release the code, people could write third-party clients, and there already are open-source third-party Steam clients, such as Mist is one of them. Um, are you implying there's a problem with third-party clients? Or is there one I'm not thinking of? Um, thinking as a game developer, mm -hmm. there's Steam, and then you could publish your game um, online, or at least have it available for download. Um, but if you've got multiple different uh, third parties that are now becoming more and more popular because that code from Steam has been copied, okay. um, then you're worrying more about 
um, having your game on multiple platforms than just on the main platform. Right. So that's where it comes down to. You're not... Steam clients would still have to get the games from the Steam server. If somebody wanted to make their own game publishing system, that's a different issue. Um, and it's not going to really happen because the reason why Steam is the main PC gaming platform is because there's so many games on it. And so when people go to look at where they want to publish their games, Steam is an obvious choice. Um, yeah, I completely agree that developers don't want to have to deal with a bunch of different things, but having the Steam client open sourced would not... I, I, I can't see how that would create more problems for game developers because the client being open sourced, once again, you're still going to have to download the games from Steam servers. And you can still only do that if you're authenticated and you've paid for it. Um, yeah. And, oh, yeah, so part of the reason that I was talking about this was because the Steam client actually has a GitHub repo, which is interesting because GitHub is a an open source. It's a place you go to track code. Like, this is where programs put their source codes that you can see the source code and download it. Uh, so there's a Steam for Linux GitHub repo. So I'm like, oh, it must be open source. I click on it, and it's just an issue tracker. They, they've got a GitHub repo, but there's no code on it. And this is the first time I've ever seen this. Because if we go to, like, GitHub, let's see, Explorer. Let's just pick out a random program here. Um, I don't know. What's a, what's a random program? Here's a, here's a multi-platform 2D and 3D game engine. So it's got the readme file, and then there's all of these different folders. We can go into one of these and find some, this is some C++ code here. And now we're looking at the code for some random program online, right? Um, this is how GitHub's supposed to work. They've got a GitHub repo with no source code on it. And it's just got 1,834 bug reports for Steam for Linux. Um, and it's got 3,000 that have been fixed, but 1,800 that are open. Um, but I've never heard of GitHub being used for something that's not open source before, and it just seems really weird, because if they wanted just a bug tracker, that's its own thing that's not GitHub. Um, but yeah, with what you were saying, yeah, no, unless... I think I was taking more of the uh, marketing, like, uh, I don't know if I want to say marketing, but... Um... I guess that would apply, having it on multiple platforms to get more buyers or um, more people to play the game. Yeah, um, I, yeah I, I think, I don't think that Steam is in any sort of danger. I think it's pretty locked in as the de facto PC gaming store. Personally, that's the sense that I get, but I don't know. Um, but yeah, you can get Steam through a Flatpak package now. Now, you could already get Steam for Linux. For years, you've been able to get Steam for Linux. Um, but yeah, now you can download it through a Flatpak. In fact, you can install the Flatpak alongside the regular version of Steam, and you won't have any problems at all, except for you'll have two icons, and you won't know which one opens which. But, um, but yeah, like I was saying, because it's not open source, which I think has to do with Steam's DRM, which is, it's the best possible DRM because we don't know it's there. I've never had to fight with Steam DRM. Steam DRM is really great DRM, but it's still DRM. So I think that's why their software is proprietary because they don't want people cracking games that they shouldn't own. But yeah, when you download the... Uh, so Flatpak is made by Fedora, and the Flatpak standards say you are not allowed to include proprietary code in a Flatpak. 
So how do we have a flat pack for a proprietary program? Well, the flat pack for Steam is actually just a script that downloads Steam from the Steam website and uh, and then bundles them up when you run it. So you're actually just downloading the flat pack to run a script, and then the script is what actually gets Steam and installs it on your system. Uh, so that's kind of an interesting workaround. It's not the first time we've seen that happen. Um, that's happened just in regular old packages before with like Java and stuff. But yeah, um, and this okay, is the so it's uh, the flat pack has the script. So then that script goes and uh, fetches Steam to download? Exactly. Yeah, because they're not allowed to just include Steam. Cool. They make it, here's instructions for your computer to install Steam. Or, if you don't want to use Flatpak, you can just get Steam yourself. But it's nice to have the Flatpak option. Um, and I'm sure we'll be seeing a snap not too far behind because they've got a, they're have got they competing right now. Um, yeah, here's the issue on on the Steam for Linux bug tracker on GitHub. Somebody suggested June 1st, 2016. So this was over a year in the making. Um, somebody first suggested flatpack.org says that Flatpak is the new framework for desktop Linux applications. Let's see. It should be easier to reach a wired audience. I don't know. They, they were um, seeing the future last year that Flatpak was going to win the standards war, and the standards war is still going on over a year later. But after all of this discussion throughout the year, yeah, now we've got a Steam Flatpak. So that's our last story for the week. That's that a, a lot. It was a lot. And uh, like the the exciting stuff was the Debian releases, but yeah, there there is a lot of cool stuff happening right now. Oh, where where is my uh where's herd by the way? Let's see how we're doing there. Did it just disappear? Um oh I dragged it over here. Um alright the system may anonymously supply the distribution developers with statistics, but the default selection is no, which is the key difference between Linux and Windows, so I'll hit enter. Um, alright, and it only got 13% through the install before it uh, asked me that question, so it is still running. But yeah. Uh, went very far and got a lot done in that amount of time. Yes, well it would have if I had been paying attention and I just clicked that, like it stopped to wait for me to answer that question 13% of the way in. But um, yeah, that's all there needs for this week, and when we come back, maybe Stephanie will install Linux. Maybe. All right. Hey, Stephanie, have you heard about the Nerd Club? Of course I have. The Nerd but, of the Street... you know what? I think I've got some friends, and I think you would explain it better. Oh, okay. Well, the Nerd of the Street Nerd Club is a way that you can give back to Nerd of the Street. If you enjoy our content and you want to help us make more, uh, you can head on over to nerdclub.nots.co, and you can support us with a small monthly payment of $3 per month. Uh, you can do that through our Patreon page. You know Patreon's legitimate. Head on over there, you can read a little bit about us, about how we support free and open software and what we're trying to do here. Uh, once we reach $100 a month on Patreon, we're going to take all the advertisements off of our videos on our website. That'll be just better for everybody once we do that. Um, but even if you don't want to do a recurring payment, you can give us $18 for six months of Nerd Club membership, $36 for one year of Nerd Club membership, prepaid one time, no renewals or anything, it's just a one-off thing. But Jacob, why would I join the Nerd Club? What's that get me? Well, it gets you access to some really cool features on our website, like the live stream DVR. That's a way you can go and watch all of our live stream recordings completely uncut, such as this one. Me and Stephanie are having conversations. Some of them might not make the episode, but you can watch them all in the live stream DVR. We've also got members-only areas on our website, like a chat room and a forum, so you can talk to other cool people because cool people are in the nerd club 
Uh, you can also occasionally get some exclusive merchandise. The banner ads on our website go away. If you're on Discord, we'll give you the Nerd Club Discord role on our server so you can be a different color than everyone else, which makes you special. And, uh, yeah, basically, we just we really want to make more content than we do here at Nerd on the Street, but we don't have the time or the resources to do that right now, and we really need your guys' support. Um, so, yeah, head on over to nerdclub.nots.co, and if you want to help us make more stuff. Do you have anything else to add to that, Stephanie? No. All right. I like that. That was good. You have rehearsed your commercial. Yeah, I mean, I haven't. <laughs> yeah, it was rough uh, episode one, but I've, I've refined it is what I've done. Um, so I don't have any uh, desktop environment here. Um, yeah, have you? How, how's the Jitsi plugin going? Did you get my link? Oh hi! I got a rocket. I gave you mine. My link. Oh, okay. Oh, and we've got Firefox about to open up with a thousand tabs. Everybody, hang on just a second, please. And I'll close out of that. Who? I really should just like uninstall Firefox while I'm doing the show and then reinstall it after. I so don't that I know how you stand Firefox. Well, you know why I use it? <laughs> you know why I use it? It's why? for privacy. Because Google tracks Google tracks everything. Even Chromium. Chrome, Google Chrome is proprietary. Chromium is open source. But then Google has all of my search history. Mozilla cares about my privacy. So... And we've talked in previous episodes. I the dog's trying to come back. I have, uh... You know. I have talked in other episodes about how I don't like Firefox as compared to Chrome, but I still use it out of the, it's for the moral of it. Stop Firefox. Stop Firefox. Opening up a terminal. Kill all Firefox. That did it. Alright. Yeah, the quit button wasn't working. I'm unmuting you, Stephanie, and I will copy that link and open it in Chrome here. Why didn't you just do it on the Mark desk? Like, we use that same Jitsi link every week. Adam used it last week. He didn't make his own for, like, Adam share. Stephanie's special over here with her ST share. All right, I'm in the second Jitsi. All right, I see your screen now. Great. Okay, I'm Stephanie. Go, go to the, uh, go to the virtual box. We'll see, we'll see how far we get here. Stop it, Daisy. Here, here, all right, your screen is on stream now. FYI. Okay. Go to VirtualBox. Okay. So, Try new I things. Great. Alright, so what <laughs> you need to do now is I'm going to send you a link to download Ubuntu Mate. And Oof. Okay. you can download that. I'll just send you the direct link. Do you have a BitTorrent client installed on your computer right now? If not, I will send you a regular link. Not that I know. Alright. We'll grab the regular one. BitTorrent is a popular way to download Linux distros because Linux is free, they don't make money on it, it costs money for bandwidth, so by using, uh, let's see here, by using BitTorrent we can all kind of help share the cost, but you can download it from their servers that they're paying for. I just sent you the ISO no. link. Okay. You know... You know, like, your end of the video is awfully shaky this week. On the upside, my end of the video didn't have construction noises this week. So this is a net gain over our last episode. I'll take a dog over construction any day, personally. I don't know about our audience, if they have anything to say about that, but, um, somebody on Beam... I can't deal with this dog. 
Somebody on Beam did tune in and tell us that we are streaming under Toontown right now. That is true. Yeah, we are on everything. No. On Hitbox, we are under Art and Creative, and on Twitch, we are under Talk Shows right now. So, it's I'm just... worried that the dog needs to pee. Uh, this, is a, th this is way better of an angle than you've had all day. You should have started, like, here. <laughs> um, okay. All right. Well, thank you for... Did you... Did that... That didn't finish. All right, so that's okay, still downloading. No, you don't want to... All right. It's not going to do anything when you open it. You have to open it through VirtualBox, but it's still downloading. It's got uh, 20 minutes to go, looks like. I don't know how big the file is. Uh, 25 minutes, and it's going up. <laughs> Jeez. All right. Well, it used to take me forever to download an ISO. Uh, with my current internet, it's not as miserably long as it used to be. We'll see how far you get here, and I wonder if I can get... So what is the GNOME meta package called in Debian? Debian... Install no because I somehow managed to select the desktop environment. Um, all right, let's see. In it five, switching to run level five. I somehow managed to try and install the desktop environment, but I did not manage to actually install the desktop environment. So gnome, I think we're already in run level five. All right. Um, apt get install gnome desktop environment. GNOME desktop environment has no installation candidate. GNOME has no installation candidate. This is crap. This is what this is right here is this is not legit. This is uh okay, here we go, here we go. Apt get install task gnome desktop. Unable to correct problems, you have held broken packages. Alright, so herd's not quite ready for day-to-day -day usage yet. And this is why I'm still on Linux. Even though Herd is free, it also doesn't boot. So, you know, that kind of outweighs any positives. That's all about all I can do there. I, I'm not going to troubleshoot that on stream. Because that's it just... the dog got me to get out of my seat just to take my seat. So that's a smart dog. Uh, looks like it's about a quarter of the way done. Should I, I should have had you download it beforehand. It's what I did with Mark, but we kind of yeah, we kind of planned this last night, just like last week. Yeah, yeah. I hope Mark comes back because if he doesn't, we are gonna have to find another anchor for this show. And Stephanie, you've been great. Um, I hope you like Linux once it does download. I, I I don't know if you're gonna like you just said you wouldn't be able to do this next week, so we can go back to Adam. If Mark's not able, Mark, here's the words Mark used with me was, uh, was his summer is becoming way more busy than he thought it was going to be, and he thinks he has to reevaluate his priorities. And every time, here's how that works: is that when I reevaluate my priorities, I change colleges. When anybody else reevaluates <laughs> their priorities, they stop doing nerd on the street. That's how this works. So, um. So yeah, I'm expecting that Mark's gonna drop any. Unfortunately, I'd love to have him keep doing it, but uh, but yeah, as of right now, not looking good. But we'll see if he wants to come back. If he's able to come back next week, then I'll be happy about it. Oh, guess what came in the mail today? What? My shirt. Sweet. The five-year shirt. I got one for my brother and me. Cool. So 
hopefully if my brother comes to extra life, hmm. um, he can have something that says nerd on the street, which he was super upset that every time we do something, it's while he's gone. Oh, yeah. Seems as though we well, got, got three seconds left. Eight seconds. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to switch to your screen, just you FYI. All right. So go to settings, okay. and you're going to do a few things in here. You're going to go to system, go to processor, drag that up to two, and enable the PAE checkbox at the bottom. Then go to display, drag that to the max, video memory. Enable 3D acceleration, not 2D. Enable 3D, yeah. And uh, go to storage. Go to the disk at the top, like the empty, yep, click that. And then on the icon on the very right of that window, that's the same icon, click that, and then open up your download that you just, uh, click choose virtual optical disk file. And I'll switch off your screen for a second uh, so that you can open up your file system, but go to your downloads folder. Yeah, that's yeah, the one. Okay. Open. Okay. Alrighty. So then I'll switch back to your desktop. And at this point, you can click OK. And go ahead and start that machine up. So I gave Stephanie Ubuntu Mate. And this is not the primary Ubuntu distro, but it's very fast. It should work well in VirtualBox. You should definitely try out some other desktops some other time. But right now, I thought this would be an OK start. Um, it's not the prettiest thing, but it's pretty good looking compared to some other desktops. So yeah. And Random Dude says it's pronounced Mate. I will pronounce it Mate when they add an accent over the E. Until then, I'm pronouncing it Mate. I told you this last week, Random Dude, and I will not bend to the pressure. Um, <laughs> so yeah. You could just call it Matt and make everyone angry. Call it Matt. Ubuntu. Matty. Matey. It's the pirate version. Ubuntu, matey. Or is that a pirate thing? Let me know if we got an end. Alright, so we're starting up here. It has a fancy background. Yes, it does. It already has my approval. I like fancy And background. go ahead and click install. Like I said, let me know if you gotta stop. My friend... Oh. Is this the 50? Um, they had a package for 2050. 100. Jacob, are we still going? I'll go as long as you want to. <laughs> you can check both of those and click continue. He's showing me how to get Linux. Linux. <laughs> See, she doesn't even know what it is. Well, I've explained it to you, so you can explain it to her. Right? It's dangerous. <laughs> you told me just to explain it to you. Um, but it is an operating system like uh, Windows and Apple, uh, the Mac. I'm on a Windows computer, and he told me to get this thing, so now I can run a different system on the system. Okay. Okay, do I click any of these boxes? Um, nope, just click install now. Uh, uh, yeah, continue. Yep, you're in a, a virtual machine, so it can't overwrite anything outside of that machine. It's a virtual machine. I still have not been able to wrap my mind around that. Yeah, see, Random Dude sent me to a link. Yeah, you can continue through everything. Uh, just, it's simple from here on out. Random Dude oh, links me to the page 
where we've got the pronunciation of mate, but the plant that it's named after has an accent over the E. So that just proves my point that this one does not have an accent and it's pronounced differently. Um, is there a At this point, no, you've got the default selected. Uh, go ahead and um, you're going to need to X out of those little pop-ups at the top, the white things. And then drag the top of that window over to the left. No, the other way. Yeah, I could continue there. It was just cut off from the screen. All right. It takes a really long time to download. I should have had you download it beforehand. It was way worse back in the day when we had DSL because the ISO files were bigger and download speeds were slower. It would take me a whole day to download an ISO. And if it got corrupted halfway through, that's a whole day wasted. Um, oh, goodness. So the fact... GIMP? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, GIMP is, uh, it stands for GNU, Image Manipulation Program. It's part of the GNU project. Uh, what? GIMP was so hard to use. GIMP is, I, I use GIMP all the time. Um, it's a pain. It's not that different from Photoshop, is it? Um. I don't use GIMP. Well, I, I used to use, um, use it to, like, recolor or... Um, nothing too fancy, but it was always easier to select things in um, in Photoshop than it was in GIMP. Okay. In GIMP, you would have to go pixel by pixel, trying to get the uh, object that you wanted. Yeah. I mean, it has fuzzy select. I don't know if it's as good. Um, I don't use GIMP a whole lot because most of my graphics I like to make vector graphics so I can rescale. Um, but I do, I can say that Inkscape is a heck of a lot easier to use for me than Adobe Illustrator. Um, but yeah, I can't speak to GIMP because I'm, I'm... Inkscape. Huh? Yeah, you have not used Inkscape? You should try it out. And part of the Inkscape philosophy is that they conform to the SVG file standard 100%. They will not add a feature if it does not conform to the standard. So you remember that time when you sent me an SVG file and it did not display properly? Um, that means that Illustrator does not conform to the SVG standard, and Adobe can get away with that because they're a big enough company. But, um, but yeah, Inkscape conforms to the SVG standard, which we're all about standards, because that way you can have different programs that operate together. But yeah, I'd be interested in seeing what you think of Inkscape as a graphic designer. I don't know. I've, I've been using Adobe Illustrator for maybe since I was started high school that it's just become my default to everything. Yeah. Uh, I use, like if I have to do a minor detail on a photo, I'll use like um, pickmonkey.com. Like, I go there, and I, um, they've changed it a lot since I first started using it, but I used to do simple, easy modifications to photos, and yeah. other times I would go to Illustrator to add, to change, any of that. That's interesting. It's like a web-based thing. Yeah. Um, I used... I used um, Illustrator for all of my thumbnails. I use Illustrator for. Um, I was talking about the pig monkey project. thing that you mentioned, but. Pig monkey. Uh, I just. I really needed something to. Um, I was looking for. 
image uh, editors online, but I couldn't find anything, and I decided to stick with PicMonkey. Um, restart the computer in order to use the new installation. Yep, click that. Okay. Just press enter. Alright, let's see how Stephanie's first boot into Linux goes. If this goes well, she might like Linux. If this goes poorly, she might hate Linux forever. So I'm hoping it goes well. Well, I'll still have to use it. Because I'm not going anywhere. That's good to hear. <laughs> Alright, crossing my fingers. We get some panels in a moment here. It works. Because <laughs> if it doesn't, we're going to have to call it. Because I have work tomorrow, too. Oh, gosh. I have work in the morning, too. Yeah. Oh. This is not promising. This is, this is uh, scaring me a little bit. I'm not seeing any hard drive activity. Is it because I resized the... No, that window? shouldn't have done anything bad. Should I close it? Reset? Paused? Uh... You can try resetting. That's all we can really do. If it doesn't work, we can pick this up in two weeks next time you make your appearance. Um, that's. I mean, next week I'll be in Michigan, possibly uh, Canada. So if we want to reach Canada. <laughs> Although I don't think I'll make it. My uh, passport isn't updated. Oh, do we need a passport to get into Canada? Um, there have been very strong debates whether it is required or not, but um, I have heard that it's either a passport. Um, or a passport card. There's some other card you can use to get across. Uh, an enhanced license only available in a couple of states. But yeah, other than that, I thought that you could, you know, use like a birth certificate or something. But I, according to customs, not anymore. Stupid Canada. Locking yes. us out. Um, so this, open up your your task manager because I'm not. This doesn't look like a Linux issue at this point. This looks like Windows is not letting VirtualBox reset. Go to performance. Uh, everything looks okay, actually. That's typically how my computers work. Right. Well, uh, go to go to processes and go ahead and right click VirtualBox and in process, I guess. Which one? Both. Alright, that, that, don't end that one though. That's fine. The one. Okay. Um. Click don't run. This was Windows okay. screwing with stuff. No. Go ahead and open up VirtualBox again now. We'll try opening okay. it up. It should load in five seconds after you click start. If he doesn't, then that's it. Hey, I want to thank you for joining us this week, Stephanie. Seriously. Um, we wouldn't have had an episode this week without you, so thanks for showing up, and thanks for giving Linux a shot here. No problem. I am here to try new things, as my computer here is titled. Yeah. And thank you for your advice for getting people. Maybe I'll head over to r slash Linux and ask if anyone's into video production, and I'll head to r slash video production and ask if anyone's into Linux. And, uh... <laughs> That is the good news.
Alright, oh, it, it looks like it worked, but we don't have panels. Don't open things yet. It's still loading. Okay, I'm sorry. There's your welcome screen, but the panels haven't loaded yet. It looks like your resolution's wrong, which you should be able to fix, but... Alright, well, we're gonna have to finish this up next time that Stephanie's on, but you got... Sim you got um, Ubuntu Mate, you got it semi-installed, um, so there's that. Yeah, you can feel free to play with that, and if, it, if you break something, you can always just make a new virtual machine, uh, that's what's great about those. Thanks everyone for showing up, thanks Random Dude for being in the chat room, and the people who are on our other websites like Twitch and Beam. Um, oh, somebody else was on Beam too, hello, head on over to live.nots.co so we actually see your comments next time. So yeah, that's another week of Linux news. Debian 9, very excited about that, and congrats to those guys for finally making another great release. Um, I'm assuming it's going to be great because it's Debian, you know. And uh, yeah, I'll try out that Fedora fix. Some cool news this week. Yeah, thanks again for Stephanie for joining us. If you want to find Stephanie throughout the week, go to at StephTsunami on Twitter, right? Hey, yes, at yeah. Steph Tsunami, or you can just find me on YouTube at Stephanie Tsunami. Yep, and you can find me at Jacob GKAU on Twitter if you want to yell at me for anything I said this episode, and you can also find all of Nerd on the Street's content at nerdonthestreet.com. For now, though, that's another week. I'm Jacob Kaufman. I'm Stephanie Tsunami. And we'll see you guys later. Bye. <laughs>